back. Welcome back to the Higher Ground Society podcast. This is your host, Gerald Crook, and I am very, very excited for, again, I'm just always excited to start these podcasts because it's always such great conversations that I'm um, I'm anticipating. Um, but we this is the first episode for the month of April, which is so a new month, a new theme. Uh, for those of you who are unaware, April is National History Month. So Higher Ground Society will be observing all things poetry this month. So keep an eye on um, our socials and that sort of thing. But especially, please stay tuned into our podcast episodes because I have two incredible poets who I will be talking with this month. The first of which is the incredible, the amazing Ashley Jones. Hello, Ashley. Hello, Gerald. Hey there, hey there. So we, we're we like greeting each other. We're basically like best friends at this point. Um, <laughs> I really, really am so, so grateful that you took um, time out of your your life, your busy life, to um, to chat with me about poetry. I kind of get a feeling that you enjoyed this though right aha <laughs> uh-huh. uh-huh. yes i do i do enjoy poetry yeah yeah wow so um yeah i mean let's just I do this with everybody it's a very informal way to kind of introduce somebody very awkward mm-hmm. too but i like for people to um introduce themselves for themselves so tell us ashley who mm-hmm. who are you <laughs> well i'm a poet so i asked myself that question often. Um, who am I and why? Um, but I am Ashley Jones, Ashley M. Jones, professionally, because um, I'd like to give myself a little spice. My name is very plain. So that M just kind of adds that little bit, a little bit of extra. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am a poet and a teacher and an organizer. I live in Birmingham, Alabama. That's where I was born and raised. Um, I teach in the creative writing department at the Alabama School of Fine Arts. And I also teach in the low residency MFA program at Converse College. And I direct the Magic City Poetry Festival. And there's a lot more things that I do, but maybe there'll be a later time for me to list all of them. Um, Yeah, I don't know what else is relevant about me. Um, I'm black for those who don't know what I look like. I'm a black woman, I'm 30. Um, And yeah, I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. Here, Here on this podcast and here on this planet. As well. that, that's right, because we because we, we 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 didn't have to be here, right? Am I right? We sure didn't have to. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, it, it's been um, an incredible ride. I've known Ashley at this point for maybe like what two, going on two years at this point. Yeah, it feels like much longer, honestly. It really does. Um, I think it's, mm-hmm. it's just it's just a testament to um, all the things that we've bonded over. And I mm-hmm. have in my notes here that I absolutely must share the story of how I met Ashley. Uh-oh. It was <laughs> it was <laughs> such a beautiful um, moment, or just a serendipitous moment. Um, it was a it was a it was a chance meeting, I guess, with our friend, our mutual friend, Doctor Theo Foster, Doctor Theodore Roosevelt Foster the Third. That's correct. Shout out, with some respect, yeah, <laughs> to Theo, um, who is a Birmingham native as well, and mm-hmm. um, he had invited a bunch of folks who was visiting. <clears throat> in between a move, I think. And he was mm-hmm. living in Birmingham and he invited a bunch of his friends and I had gotten, we were there at Five Points 
South in Birmingham at mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the Black Market, I think. The Black Market, yes, that's it. Uh-huh. Um, we was hanging out. I was talking to um, Elijah was there, and then there was one other guy who I'm forgetting. Who I'm sorry, young man, um, but <laughs> you're great. Uh, but we were talking and talking, talking, and uh, I will never forget. I was facing the road, and there was this essentially goddess. I'm not gonna lie, like <laughs> walking. No. Across the street. That's how I felt, Ashley. I didn't oh, know no. who she was, but Ashley had on. You probably remember what you had on, because of course, Ashley. Yes. Um, <laughs> so if you do not know Ashley. She not only she is a, she's a poet and a teacher and all the other incredible things. She's also a model, a fashionista. I'm not. <laughs> oh my god. You are. You are. So Ashley, it was a was it a yellow head wrap? Do you remember? Yeah, it was. It was. Like orange and blue, I'm okay. pretty sure, because yeah. the dress was yellow. There we go. It was, yeah. I, I just remember it being very vibrant, very bright, and you had those red tassel earrings mm-hmm. on. And she just was literally kind of just, it's a cross between gliding, but also walking with authority across the street. And I was like, huh, that is a very interesting, very confident young woman. And that was it. And then literally maybe like two seconds later, no more than two seconds, but like a minute later, this young woman sits down at our table (laughs) and I was completely blown away. I was like, Oh my gosh. And um, that was the beginning of our, uh, our little journey together thus far. It's been amazing. Oh my goodness. Do you remember that day as vividly as I do? I do. I mean, let me just pause and say, you've never told me that. Oh, ever before. I thought I did. <laughs> you never, no, you did not. We talked about a lot that happened on that day, uh, but we've never, you've never told me that you saw me walking up there. Oh, absolutely. And I, I remember walking, of course, up to the table because I was like, okay, you got to prepare myself. I don't know who's going to be here, you know? And of course I was really into my outfit that day. I was like, okay, yeah, this feels great. I feel good, you know, whatever. But I really didn't know that any of y'all saw me until I walked up to the table. Well, um, that is I so beautiful. I did. Wow, that's like that's the kind of story that everybody wants to hear about themselves. Honestly, <laughs> at least I always have wanted to hear a story just like that. Mm-hmm. And I mean, at this point, we just have to get married. That's <laughs> the conclusion. All right, let's set a date. So this is turned into the. <laughs> The um, what is the engagement party? So, uh, podcast <laughs> now, but um, Ashley and I get around a lot, we do just, just mm-hmm. enjoy each other so much, and we talk about so many incredible things. And um, I'm gonna go ahead and say, you guys should count yourselves lucky to get a little insight <laughs> on our one of our conversations. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because yes. we do, we have so much to share, so much, and Ashley's helped me with so much throughout um, just these year and a half. <laughs> um, it's been great. And uh, so I'm ready, so excited to get into our conversation. Um, so yeah, thank you for introducing yourself. I mean, and then she also sold herself short, but honestly, I can understand how it would be difficult because you do do so much and we definitely will talk about <laughs> all of that later. Um, but before we get there, let's talk about um, your writing. Let's, I mean, a lot of people write uh, and I think maybe fewer people get to the point to where you are, to where you are a published poet. Uh, mm-hmm. Typically, if we weren't in, a, in the middle of a panoramic, you would be traveling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you would be traveling and, and mm-hmm. sharing your poetry with people. So you are a professional poet. Um, 
So how do we get there? So where did you, did you, what did you decide that you wanted to write? When? I decided that I wanted to write when I was seven years old. Okay. Um, and I feel like I've been telling this story a lot over the past year because people have been asking me a lot, which is fine. I mean, I'm happy to tell the story. And it actually has made me realize how peculiar the story actually is because not everybody knows that early what they want to do with their whole life, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, now, of course, I would say it was the Lord. And oh. we're not going to preach today. We're not doing that. You will, but it's okay. But <laughs> <laughs> something was planted in me. My purpose was planted in me at an early mm-hmm. age. So um, I was a seven, seven-year-old uh, little girl, already very bookish, you know, at, at my house. Um, all we did was read and learn. That was, you know, our fun. We watched the public television shows. Mr. Rogers was, you know, the homie. Uh and um, the puzzle plays and wishbone. lamb chops, wishbone. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All of that stuff um, was our entertainment and books. Like I said, books and art was what we did. So even before I was seven, I knew that I enjoyed that kind of thing. So um, in second grade, I was in the self-contained gifted class at Epic Elementary. Um, don't endorse self-contained gifted. I think it's a terrible model for um, <laughs> education. Y'all can fight me if, if you think it's good, <laughs> but I went through it and it's ridiculous. Um, so anyway, in my class, we had an assignment to memorize something. It could be anything. And then we'd have to come to school and recite that thing in a costume and whatever thing it was. So some kids chose like to recite some facts about something and whatever. So I had been reading on my own. I had been reading a book of poetry called Honey, I Love that I got out of the library my favorite place um, at school. And this book is by Eloise Greenfield. It's a book of poems that are appropriate for children, but I think anybody could read them and they're just about black things. Um, and so I was really into this book. So I, I decided I would re- I would um, memorize Harriet Tubman, um, the poem Harriet Tubman from that book. And so the day came and my mom had dressed me up like Harriet Tubman, which in hindsight is ridiculous. I was just like a tiny little you know, a little black girl with like white clothes on, <laughs> you know, looking like a, an usher or a nurse or something. Um, and so I got to class and at the time I still had enlarged adenoids and um, tonsils. So I couldn't breathe through my nose. So I had just like a stuffy sound all the time, but I was really happy that day. Cause I could breathe out of one of my nostrils, you know, or something like that. Huh? And so, <laughs> and so I remember reciting the poem, um, which, you know, which starts, Harriet Tubman didn't take no stuff, wasn't scared of nothing either, didn't come in this world to be no slave and wasn't going to stay one either. And it, you know, goes on and on. You better remember. Uh, but I remember, <laughs> I, that's all I remember though. People are like, you know the whole thing? Absolutely not. I was seven years old. Okay. <laughs> um, so I remember reciting that and feeling just so powerful. You know, I felt, I don't know, like, as somebody who I think, I think I was born a poet. So I always had this like angst, you know, inside of me. So for that moment, when I was reciting, I didn't feel anxious. I didn't feel inadequate. I often, um, I struggled with self-esteem as a young person, all the way up to my early twenties, I would say, but I felt really good. I felt like I was, you know, beautiful and, you know, black, you know, I wasn't this awkward, really proper speaking, you know, how, you know, how our people like to you know, <laughs> if you speak mm-hmm. proper, then you don't always get to enter into certain conversations or people have things to say about you. And I always wanted to like have that control of language that I heard 
um, you know, my aunts, even my mom, my dad, my grandma, I wanted to have that swing, that like just blackness in my voice. And so when I recited this poem, I finally had that. It was coming out of my mouth. You know, I could channel the spirit. I didn't have this vocabulary then, of course, but I was channeling, I think, Mm -hmm. the spirit of Tubman, Greenfield, the spirit of any black, you know, woman. And I knew I have to do this now. I want to write poems too. So I decided at that point to begin writing in this notebook. Um, I I had this composition book already because I was really into Harriet the Spy also. Um, Is this another moment? This is yet another (laughs) moment. I will, I promise, I'm sorry to interrupt, but me and my best friend, Cicely, we, I think, well, it might've been several of us in maybe fourth or fifth grade, we all read this book and just became obsessed mm-hmm. with, you know, mm-hmm. being a spy. So, and so that's how like, you know it's real. The book. You didn't say the movie. You said the book. That's right. Oh, absolutely. I haven't seen that movie to this day. What? It's <laughs> it's actually pretty good. I recommend that movie. It's, okay. it, it feels true enough to the book, but no, the book, 10 out of 10. Love it. Um, so I too was obsessed <laughs> with that book and <laughs> had my little spy journal that I would carry around. Um, mm-hmm buying on my family, which is like weird to say out loud, (laughs) you know, but that's what I did. Nobody bothered me. They knew I was weird. All of us are weird. So, you know, Uh, but anyway, I still have that notebook somewhere. I think it's somewhere um, with my parents, but um, it has poems in it, that notebook from seven-year-old me. And they're very angsty. Like I said, just a lot of deep angst, um, which I don't know, maybe somebody should have been concerned about, but you know, <laughs> no, that's when I knew, that's when I knew I wanted to be a poet. So I've been doing it ever since then. That's incredible. Um, and I'm just thankful that you had the, um, the mind to stick with it and to really invest in it. Cause some people, that could have been a moment just like, Oh, this feels really good. And it just could have been a passing thing, but you were open to the spirit of the arts is one of the terms that you use. I love that. Mm-hmm. Like it was beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's important. I hope people hear this and maybe open up their hearts and ears and minds to um, some spirit that might be speaking to them to p- pursue some things that they um, probably have a knack for, but just haven't mm-hmm. had the, that push. And so I'm glad it has led you um, this this far uh, to where you are doing incredible things. And so uh, I guess one of the things you, you told us how you started out, mm-hmm. you obviously had to develop. So let's talk about some of your inspirations as far as like, you know, you, El- Eloise Greenfield is her name. Mm-hmm. So you have mm-hmm. Eloise Greenfield. Who else might have kind of, you know, lit this spark in your, or, or nurtured this spirit in you and as you move forward? And you can talk about some folks who, who you like now too. Sure. Um, well, I'll first of all say, backing up just a little, um, I have to give thanks to my parents for encouraging me throughout my life because it's one thing to hear the spirit telling you that this is what you're supposed to do. It's another thing for your parents to tell you you have to do something else. You know, there's mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of people who um, wanted to be artists or want to be artists and they don't necessarily have the parental support because people don't know that you can actually survive as an artist. You don't have to starve. Mm-hmm. You don't have to, you know, um, live a terrible life. You actually can support yourself yeah. um, if you just have some strategies. So I just have to say that um, if it wasn't for the family that I have, I don't think I would be where I am at cool. all. 
Um, but as far as influences and inspirations, um, I'll just start with the one that I have to get out of the way first. Well, not get out of the way, but I have to give honor first to my favorite poet, someone who is still guiding me, I think, um, to this day, and that's Lucille Clifton. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't find her until I was in college. And if you want to learn more about that process, you can read an essay that I wrote um, on mentor and muse. Um, it's a little more detailed in how I came to her, but she really opened a huge door for me um, just by reading her work. I never met her while she was alive. Um, I just met her through the page. And mm-hmm. when I found her, I was really thirsty for black voices all mm-hmm. my life, even through art school. As a high schooler, I just wasn't exposed to enough black writers. Mm-hmm. Um, in high school, I remember carrying around the selected works of Rita Dove for my whole like senior year. And I just reread it over and over and over and over and over again, mm-hmm. because that was like, the only black person I had, you know, found at school. Um, And that's, of course, no shade to my teachers. Like, they taught me well, but, you know, um, American education is not the best with diversity. Um, And writing education is super not the best with that. I mean, we're Mm -hmm. getting better, but traditionally, you're lucky to even, like, read some women writers, honestly. Oh, for Um, sure, yeah. So, um, so, yeah, she's a huge... um, Like, Phyllis Wheatley, Maya Angelou... Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. off yeah. the top of my head, that's it. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you get Phyllis Wheatley, is the other thing. Sure. Like, I didn't learn about her until I don't know when. You know. Yeah. yeah. Um, I didn't actually like explore her work until I taught it myself last year. Oh, okay. Which is ridiculous to me. I yeah. mean, they mention her, you know, in school, but it's not like we're really diving, you know, into the work. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's more of like, a, oh, the first black published poet next chapter right (laughs) um which is doing her such a disservice yeah because she's so much more than that but anyway so yeah clifton um continues to be an inspiration to me and i'm really fortunate to know her daughters now um okay and that's been wild (laughs) like that (laughs) never would have imagined that i could meet them and they even like call me sis which like oh wow i'm just like whoa (laughs) (laughs) it's a lot I I don't know if I can hold that because I will explode you know um (laughs) so she's one um who else I was really into um in my college years I was really into Pablo Neruda yeah Uh, (laughs) yes yes a classic um I remember the first Valentine's gift I ever received was the collected works of Pablo Neruda. Oh, yeah, that person was swinging hard. <laughs> like, well, <laughs> you wanna drop? Well, no, he was just—he's very thoughtful guy. Um, he was a very thoughtful guy, and he's a successful um, chemistry professor now. Okay, um, so I'm, I'm I'm happy for him. But anyway, yeah, he was just really very thoughtful and I think asked me directly who's your favorite poet and then proceeded to purchase the collected words of oh, that okay, person okay. which is very nice yeah um but yeah I was super into Pablo uh not only because of what he writes about I really love the odes the elemental odes a lot mm-hmm. um and of course the love poems of course um but yeah. also I minored in Spanish in college so I was really I was trying to read his work in Spanish reading poetry in Spanish is like hard oh for sure um, any other language i imagine because not only are you trying to just grasp like 
what are they saying? But also like the poetic elements and come on. Yeah. Right. Right. That's a, that's a cool task though. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I tried, you know, I got, I got a little far um, reading in Spanish. I wrote some in Spanish too, back in college. I mean, the poems were terrible, like <laughs> bad, <laughs> but yeah, those are a couple. Um, who else? Sonia Sanchez, obviously. Um, yes. Another Birmingham native who is amazing and um, who was instrumental in so many things in our country. Like, I think we don't learn enough about her in school. We wouldn't have Black studies if it wasn't for her. Um, mm-hmm. You know, she's such a such a blueprint um, for the activist teacher. Um, and then, let me see, I'll throw one more in... Um, Audrey Lord is one who, who's been really instrumental to me, um, as an older person, well, older in my most recent years, I'll say, cause I guess I'm not old, but, um, her essays and her poetry have meant a lot to my understanding of feminism specifically, um, or black feminism, I'll say yeah. intersectional feminism. Um, she's been really, really, um, instrumental in that. And interestingly enough, mm-hmm. I also am connected to one of her like protégés, um, my mentor, Dr. Aza Wiersoli, who teaches at FIU in Miami, was her mentee, mm-hmm. and like literally like touching the hand of Dr. Wiersoli is like touching the hand of Audrey Lord, which sure. is wild. Um, she's told me stories about her, and I don't know. There's just so much connection um, that I never imagined could happen um, yeah. with these people who I admire. Yeah, I mean, and Audrey Lord in partic- particular, I learned of her um, later on in life too. I mean, we're talking like we're like what <laughs> eight years old, <laughs> but though, like recently, as we're as we're understanding ourselves and coming to our own as young adults, um, yeah. And I have to say, I haven't touched on much of her poetry, mostly just um, her essays and like her theory, and you know, like you said, what she has contributed to the um, the. Um, work of feminism and our understanding of it. Um, but I'm, I'm writing these down mentally. I will, you know, obviously, um, <laughs> I mean, I was already down with, with Pablo and, uh, and I mean, you mentioned Lucille Clifton too. You actually introduced me to Lucille Clifton just by how much she shines off of you. Just, I mean, cause you, you honor her so much. And I just feel like that's, that's, um, that's saying something. So, um, I think it's important to talk about these kinds of things. Cause again, they are kind of, like you said, mm-hmm. blueprints, um, people that we can go to and <clears throat> as we're trying to find ourselves that kind of provide uh, some kind of guidance and mm-hmm. uh, it's very exciting to kind of have this uh, team of people that are you know not necessarily cheering you on like for real for real but in a way in your head <laughs> can be cheering your development on and, and guiding that um, so thank you for sharing that uh, so uh, I guess another thing as we're continuing to learn how you do your work, um, let's talk about your writing regimen. And this question literally comes from, I forget where I read this about Maya Angelou, but I read somewhere that she likes, though she, before she passed, that she liked to get up in that like five o'clock in the morning and go to a hotel nearby with nothing but a bottle of sherry, a notepad and a pen and some playing cards. And she would spend most of the day in a hotel room writing and um, 
taking a break, having sherry, <laughs> and playing cards. And so I was like, that is really interesting because you don't think of people, you know, having, you know, some people have, some people have their rituals and stuff, but I just got really intrigued. Mm-hmm. So I'm intrigued to know what you do for writing. Uh, we've t- kind of talked about this in the past, just you and I, but I forgot. So remind, <laughs> remind me, how do you write? How do you create your stuff? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I definitely don't go to a hotel. That is a costly practice, but she was my Angelou. So, you know, yeah, (laughs) uh, she had the, the bankroll for that. Um, I am different in that I don't write every day. And of course, those of us who've gone through writing programs, everybody always tells you, you got to write every day. You got to make a writing practice. You got to da, 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 da. And I tried that, you know, um, all throughout my schooling. And it just doesn't work for me, honestly. Mm-hmm. I'm someone who needs to live my life before I come to the page. I can't just be at the page waiting for life to, like, come, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, that's just me. I, it is important to say that you have to find what works for you. That's the only way that you can be successful is if you are doing what works in your life. So I know for me... I'm not waking up at any specific time every morning. I'm not forcing myself to write so many pages a day. Mm-hmm. I'm just not doing that. I'm not going to like force anything out of myself if I feel like it's bad. Like, of course, we're all going to write bad poems. But if I don't feel like looking at a bad poem, I'm not going to write it. Like, <laughs> I'm just not going to write. It. <laughs> I'm sorry. You know? Yeah. yeah. Um, so what I do is um, I just, you know, live my regular life. Um, so maybe that means I'm teaching, reading, you know, traveling when we're not in a pandemic, um, <laughs> cooking, shopping, whatever. And the ideas, I don't want to say they always just like poof there, you know, they descend on me. But um, in one way or another, the poem will find me. So if I'm you know, reading an article about something mm. and it piques my interest, excuse me, in a way that... Um, leads me to the page to explore it more mm-hmm. then I'm writing a poem or if um you know I'm just driving along this happens a lot I'll be doing something normal like driving um and I'll like see the shape of a poem in my head or a line or and it's not usually out of nowhere like there may have been an idea that percolated for a while I do a lot of the the pre-work in my head which I don't recommend for students because like I think I had to go through however many amount of years of regular you know process learning the pro the traditional process to get to where I am now um but for me if the idea is like kind of marinating in there whenever I start to see the shape of the poem or see the first line or see the last line or see how I want some arc to happen Mm -hmm. that's when it's time to get to the page and get it done um I think that I do think in poems which sounds really pretentious but (laughs) It's just true. Like, I don't know. I think visual artists think in images and musicians think in songs or whatever. I really do like think about poems and I, some of my thoughts just are poetic. Like, I don't, I don't know how else to say that. that I certainly hope I don't sound a certain kind of way. Um, cause I'm not that kind of way, but. No, it totally makes sense. But I do have a question I want you to clarify on. So, I mean, you kind of talk about it, but, um, the shape of the poem, do you mean literally like (laughs) what it looks like on the page? I mean, shape in that way, yes, and the literal way that it looks, but also what the poem is going to do. Oh. So, for example, let me try to think of a... Okay, so there's this poem in my second book called... um, Lord, 
let me look and see what it's called because sure. <laughs> I don't know my own titles. Uh, but it's about Uncle Remus. There it is. Uncle Remus Syrup Commemorative Lynching Postcard Number 25. It's um, in Dark Thing, but that poem, I'll just briefly tell the story. And this poem is, um, is it published online somewhere? These are things I should just know off the top of my head, but like, I'm telling y'all, no, you're just because I wrote the book doesn't mean that I memorized the book. Right. right. <laughs> and of course, just while she's getting that together, um, you guys, so Ashley is published twice already um, with the book coming out very soon. We'll talk about that in a second. But she's talking about her second book, Dark Thing, which was published in 2019. Um, so lots of praise, got some awards, which is not uncommon for Miss Jones. So um, by all means, uh, you can check these out where, where books are sold <laughs> um, and, and, and you can pick some up. But um, yeah, so from Dark Thing, we're talking about Uncle Remus Syrup yes. Commemorative Lynching Postcard number 25. Yes, it is published at Origins Literary Journal if you are interested in reading it or you can purchase dark thing as gerald said um <laughs> anywhere books are sold um anyway so with that poem wow i talk a lot and i'm a leo maybe that's why i don't know um <laughs> but i always tell people i don't like talking about myself because i don't but then i end up just talking you know anyway <laughs> anyway so with that poem i was teaching um a class about i think it was called literature and film of the African diaspora. And um, there was a unit that I was preparing for that talked about the um, reconstruction period. And I was you know, looking up a lot of these advertisements that um, were around at the time, mm -hmm. from that time onward, using black caricatures and black characters like Uncle Remus. Um, and I also happened upon some information about lynching postcards. Um, so like two ends of the spectrum, so to speak. Um, in our society, we know that Black people are either seen as the Uncle Remus, yes, a boss, kind of happy-go-lucky, I'm so glad I'm impressed kind of person, mm -hmm. or we are this monster who has to be lynched publicly, um, as they did um, during the time of heightened lynchings in America. And that's where these postcards came into play. And I looked at some of these postcards and had to prepare to tell the students about it as well. And my brain started like chewing on that, I guess. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, really, I was getting really frustrated just thinking about how we're not allowed to be anything but those two sides of a coin. Either I'm licking up behind your boots or I'm, you know, need to be erased. Mm -hmm. And so I remember sitting in my office at school, prepping for class, like I said, and all of a sudden I saw the shape of this poem. I knew the poem was a prose poem I knew that it had this um, this like big refrain that you couldn't escape from, mm -hmm. and I knew because I had just looked at the Uncle Remus syrup, uh, you know, can. I was like, I think that's it. That's got to be the thing that I'm swimming through while I look at this lynching because I, I had the idea that I had to imagine Uncle Remus as the lynching victim because in reality, of course, Uncle Remus could be the most Uncle Remusy of them all. <laughs> But, you know, whenever the spirit strikes, he could be lynched just like any other, you know, black, black person. Absolutely. So the poem took some shape in my mind. And I knew that I was going to have to witness this lynching as I sat there. And this is going to sound very new agey, perhaps, but <laughs> I'm a poet. Remember, everyone. Um, and so I remember, like, it was almost as if I was in a trance. Now, again, 
I do have my learning. Okay. I have been to school for poetry, but yeah. it also is a part of me, you know, in a very spiritual way. Sure. So the poem like just came out of me in this just strange, fast way. I was just writing, 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 writing. I could barely keep up with my own thoughts. Mm. And I was, like I said, experiencing this lynching, watching Uncle Remus be murdered in front of my eyes as I wrote this poem. Mm. And when I finished the poem, it was as if I hadn't even written it. I was like, what just happened? You know, like I remembered seeing the shape, as I said, but beyond that, it was just like, where did this even come from? Like, who gave this to me? Why did I see this? thing um so yeah that's what i mean by shape it can either be like like i said i see this as a prose poem or like i know what this thing has to do or where i have to go with it that's incredible like i mean so we hear people talking about that kind of stuff with the visual arts um for sure with like creating music um particularly maybe you know instrumental music where people are having to try to capture these really abstract thoughts or ideas or these images mm-hmm. like you're doing jazz that's that's what you just described to me sounded a lot like jazz which is pretty crazy um that's thank you so much for sharing that process um and i mean you are so you're a teacher but you're also uh, i mean you're a poet but you're also a teacher and that's very evident because mm-hmm. you, you just taught us something there yeah. uh, <laughs> That was really great. Thank you so much. Um, and you also, I was going to ask you this, which you, and you alluded to it. Um, we talk, we're talking about your development here. So um, you went to, what was the elementary school you went to? Epic Elementary, which stands for Educational Program for the Individual Child. Child, what? I had no... <laughs> I did not know that it was, uh, it stood for something. I just thought it was called Epic. Oh, yes. That's pretty cool. Okay, so Epic Mm -hmm. Elementary, um, but I'm trying to get to this point. You went to Alabama School of Fine Arts, which is where you currently teach at the moment. Mm -hmm. Um, I almost went to Asheville. I don't know if I told you this. No, you (laughs) should have gone. You would have been my classmate, (laughs) kind of, now that I think about it. Yes. Were you going to go for seventh grade, or when when were you going to? try out it was literally just a thought my brother has my brother was going to uab at the time Mm -hmm. and he i think he tried to convince my mom and myself really to send me to this fine arts school because we don't have those kinds of things where we're from down in baldwin county alabama Uh, (laughs) (laughs) in the late 90s early uh, 2000s and so i think he just saw it as an opportunity for me to be around like-minded folks and artistic creative folks and um I think both my parents and myself are just like, mm, that's cute, but we're not sending me three hours away from home to, <laughs> for school because I was definitely very close to my parents in that in that way. Mm-hmm. And so um, that idea was very daunting. For those of you who don't know, ASFA is uh, part boarding school and, uh, mm-hmm. a, I guess, regular school. So students can't live, <laughs> <laughs> they can live on campus. Um, mm-hmm. So it's cool in that way. So Ashley went there and then you went on to where for, for college? UAB. UAB, go Blazers, very nice. And then then from there, I'm going to just take us to your educational journey. So from UAB, you went? From UAB, I went to Florida International University in Miami, Florida, where I got my Master of Fine Arts. Master or Masters? Master of Fine Arts, right? Mm -hmm. It's so confusing, the grammar of those things. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I got my Master of Fine Arts in Poetry, and then I moved back to Birmingham to teach at ASFA. Yeah, and then what did you study at UAB? I studied English with a concentration in creative writing and a Spanish minor. That's right. Very nice. So yeah. 
Mm-hmm. So for those of you, again, who are who might be listening and want to be a poet and you're looking for a pathway, this is not the pathway, right, Ashley? Would you? Right. There are many paths to being a poet. Um, there's a really famous writer. He's not a poet. He's a novelist. His name is Khaled Hosseini. If you've ever yeah. uh, read the book, The Kite Runner, which mm-hmm. I highly recommend. I mean, it's not a light read. Mm-hmm. Let me just say that first. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's, it's a little sad. Um, but he's a medical doctor. And he writes books, you know, Absolutely. you can be anyone and write. Well, let me, there's an asterisk there. You can be anyone and write, but you do need to study the, the, the practice somehow. You don't have to do it in school. Um, yeah. But, you know, read, read interviews of writers, do the thing, you know, write as much as you can. Mm-hmm. But yeah, what I did is just one pathway. Um, and it's certainly not required at all sure. yeah when you saying that about uh Hosseini, you reminded me of one of my favorite poets uh anis mojgani who is um a world slam a world champion in the world of slam poetry Ooh. um but he went to scad savannah school savannah college of arts and design mm-hmm. for illustration Oh, what? Wow. <laughs> Hello. Gotcha. So, yeah, he studied or, you know, he studied illustration, visual art, and then he went on to become this, like, world champion in slam, in slam poetry. But he's also published as well. He, I, he has three, four books, maybe. Um, and the cool thing about that is not only is he writing his own stuff, he's illustrating his own work. Oh, wow. So he's kind of like a double doozy there. He's, and he's just amazing. I'm, I'm, he's probably showed up on our socials before because I share his work pretty much every National Poetry Month because that is, that's my business and I can do that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> as Ms. Brown, as uh, Ms. Tabitha Brown says. Um, uh, yes. 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 Um, but yeah, so um, thank you so much for sharing how you get to be who you are. <laughs> now <laughs> we're going to talk about um <laughs> We're going to talk about your work now. Let's just jump right in. Um, the All right, first, let's jump in there. Yeah, the first piece we're going to talk about is um, Manifest Destiny. It's a poem for your, from your upcoming collection. You didn't sing it like you said you were going to. Oh, <laughs> wow. Well, how did I say it? Manifest Destiny. Like, I mean, is that... Is it, <laughs> There's so many iterations of, of songs and, and words and, and melodies and whatever in my head. It could have come out in a different language and I wouldn't have known. Uh, <laughs> but um, but yeah, Manifest Destiny is uh, one of the poems that, that Ashley is going to share with us. It's coming from her um, most recent or her upcoming collection of poetry, Reparations Now. Um, it will be released uh, on September 7th of this year, 2021. And it's currently available for pre-order so again it's reparations now you can check it out we'll also obviously be sharing um the all the information pertinent to it but ashley would you please share with us manifest destiny yes i would be happy to manifest destiny And so he learned that the land could be called a name, so he called it mine. And so he learned it could be bordered with blood, and so he called it conquest. And he learned that the land was willing to give fruit and flower, and he called it profit. And so he saw some other folk planting and praising, and he called them enemy. 
And so he saw there were armies to guard those flowering folk, and he called them prey. And so he saw the ocean. And what was it but a highway to make more borders? And so he saw the bright and peaceful sea, and he littered it with trade. The bodies stacked next to the crops, the textiles and the rot of disease. And so he ground hope and God into dust and called it rights. And so he heard the wind blowing joy over its people, and he sliced it up with law. And so he kept slicing for 500 years. And so he built his things around him. And so his coffers never emptied. And so he took wives and made children. And so he gave them too a price. And so he saw each blade of grass and counted it as currency. And so his blood was transfused with gold. And so he built a wall around himself to keep his many riches in, the walls encased with bone, even his heart, a fortress of muscle and money. Listen now, your past and future generations. Your hoarded hall will spoil where you stand. Thank you. <laughs> no, that's that that was that was amazing. Um thank you so much for sharing that. Um I'm kind of <laughs> when it comes to sharing work, I have a uh, a Beyonce attitude. Like I don't like to <laughs> share things that have not been released yet. And so it's uh, <laughs> I see. It's very, very <laughs> special for to me for you to share that. Um uh, this this piece coming from your your upcoming book, Reparations Now. So tell us, where, where did this, this come from? Well, um, this poem, interestingly enough, began in a text thread with some of my poet friends. Um, I was sort of ranting and raving about the vaccine distribution inequities that I saw playing out. Of course, I expected some inequity, um, just as a Southerner and as a Black person, I was like, well, of course, ours aren't going to come, you know, <laughs> surely. Um, sure enough, they didn't, <laughs> you know, come. Um, but when they did begin to come and people started booking appointments, uh, some of us noticed that there was a racial divide mm. um, uh, on who was getting these appointments and who wasn't. And also people traveling, excuse me, so far out of their way mm-hmm. to get a vaccine appointment going into somebody else's county, two and three hour drives just to get their vaccine, not knowing or not thinking about the people who lived in those places who needed their vaccines as well. Um, And of course, across the country, we heard stories of um, white people going into areas um, that were heavily populated by, by minorities, going and getting those vaccines from those people, basically. Yeah. Now, of course, they wouldn't think of it that way. But, you know, if we look at the history of white supremacy, I don't think it ever thinks it's imposing on anyone. Right. It's just yeah. like, well, I'm here. So in my rage, um, 
I was texting with my friends and we were all like, yeah, it's so annoying. It's so ridiculous. Da, da, da. And I'll have to go back and look at this text thread to see exactly how I got there. But I was just kind of going off in the, the thread. And like I said before, I think in poems. So sometimes what I say is real poetic. Um, and I said that last couplet, listen now your past and future generations, your hoarded hall will spoil where you stand. I put that in the text thread. Wow. Because as I said, I just been going off like, and you're going to, you've done this, you've done that, you've done this, and this was going to happen to y'all. And um, everybody was like, yeah, yeah, you know, reacting in the text thread. And I said, that kind of sounds like a poem. And they said, it, <laughs> yeah. it does, it does. <laughs> yeah. And I said, well, should I write it? And they said, yeah, you should. And so I was like, okay, hold, please. I literally, you know, I, you already know that I would say this, Gerald. I said, hold, please. Mm-hmm. And I went <laughs> and wrote this poem. Um, and with this one, I'm trying to remember how I saw it. I mean, I saw the last two lines, obviously, cause I wrote them. So I put those first and then I said, well, how do I get there? What do these people do? And I'm very fond of, um, the use of anaphora, which is this technique where you repeat the first, um, phrase at the beginning of the sentence, you repeat it for all your lines. Nice. And I also really like the idea of things sounding biblical and the Bible, as we know, uses anaphora a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and he begat and he begat and he begat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I wanted to write this, this history of white supremacy in such a way that it was almost fable. Like, of course we know that it is real. Um, but something about the story, I don't know, I wanted it to, to just feel like undeniable in some way. I don't know if that makes sense, but when we read fables or when we read the Bible, it's like, oh yeah, of course, you know. But when we read about white supremacy, there's always these people saying, well, no, it didn't really, that wasn't really, you know, what it is. And I'm like, okay, well, cool, cool. Let me just write it like this. <laughs> I'm not going to put any names. I'm not going to put any dates. So you can't be like, well, actually, you know, yeah, yeah. Abraham Lincoln loved the slaves. He didn't. Okay, he did not. <laughs> but, <laughs> but this way, it's just saying, here is what he did, whoever he is. This is what he did, and this is what's going to happen to him. It also is sort of like a prayer. It's like, okay, you did this, you did this, you did that. Here's what's waiting for you. Even though you think you've done all this stuff that nobody can you know, catch you on, mm-hmm. you're actually rotting as you speak, as you live, as you kill, as you pillage. Your soul is rotting. Wow. And we can't help you with that. I mean that's on you, you know? Um, so yeah. Yeah. That is, that's, that's, huh. (laughs) I mean, I just love, (laughs) I love that that is how it came about. It's very raw, very real, very literally real time. Cause I mean, I remember, uh, Mm -hmm. I remember, I remember that day specifically when you were, you were hot. Um, I wasn't part of this conversation, uh, which is fine. Uh, but like, I remember you telling me because I mean, I tend to try to stay away from the news. I can't. I personally, my fr- my same my fr- fragile sensibilities cannot take it. <laughs> so, like, you know, like, um, but I inevitably learn about you know things, atrocities, and whatnot that are happening. And so you came to me mm-hmm. with this news, and I was like, oh yeah, well this this tracks. This is how this is how this works. This is how this happens. Um, mm-hmm. And I had no idea that you were capturing it. In a poem, and I'm so glad that you did. Uh, that's what art does; it can do that. I'll never forget. I was organizing, trying to organize poetry readings in my hometown of Baymanette, and I got into an argument with one of the, or, the an organizer over the phone because I was. And so, in the early history of high ground society, and, and basically what it is now, I mean, we're using the arts to understand each other, and I think part of that understanding is to understand social injustices, things. I mean, because we can't just be in a community with people who are hurting and not 
tap into that and understand that. So, yeah, yeah. So, mm-hmm. hello. Um, so I was like, yeah, I want this to be about, I want us to be able to share poems about history, about the social injustices. And this person was like, mm-hmm. oh, well, I don't think mm-hmm. that we should have, you know, poetry shouldn't have an agenda, da 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 And I was like... Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. It was it was a moment. And I'll never forget. That was one of the because it was and it was kind of embarrassing because I had to go to that place where I don't want to go where I have to be terse with somebody or like have to put on my my adult voice like you know like right you know and it was very um was this a poet who said this to you? They were an art. They were a creative. I guess I think I forget. I forget. Um, but they they did that and. Because I t- I tend to take things kind of personal and and, and mm-hmm. inwardly I was like well dang this and this often happens with black folks where we are made to feel like the things that we want to do yep. if we're talking about our experiences yeah um is too much or it's mm-hmm. inappropriate and I was like well dang maybe maybe art shouldn't you know talk about this maybe poetry shouldn't you know maybe we should just focus on the flowers and the and the love and in <laughs> the in the sky and all that stuff um. Well, obviously that wore off, but I mean, it's still there in the back of my mind. That was a seed that I hate. It's been planted. I'm, I'm working on that, but I'm so glad that there are people like you who are out here capturing this stuff in this, in this work, um, in the arts like this. Um, and so I think as I read it, one of the questions that jumped out to me was, mm-hmm. can the things that he, you know, the he mm-hmm. poem, can the things that he did be undone? And if so, how might he or someone go about undoing them? Um, mm. And if not, how do we go forward in spite of these things? I mean, that's a very <laughs> convoluted kind of deep question. But I mean, I think it's, an, and that's something that I came up with that I was curious about after I read this poem. So what are your thoughts on that? How can these things be undone? Um, well, the quick answer is we could just burn all of this down and start again. Uh, that would be really great. Sure. Um, but I think one of the major keys that people are not really grasping yet, I mean, some people are, let's be real. Some of us know, and <laughs> some of us don't. <laughs> I'm sorry, y'all. <laughs> I, almost, I was drinking, trying to trying to hydrate, and Ashley caught me off guard. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I just no, no. made a made a gesture. But some of us um, <laughs> have known this for a long time that white supremacy can't be solved by white supremacy. Mm. Like that doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. The only way to solve white supremacy is to get a new system, like to eliminate that system, and begin with something that centers the people that is anti-whiteness. Now, for listeners who think that what I'm saying is anti-white people, I'd like to clarify here, because this is this is something that I tell my students too, because sure. um, I do teach a majority of white students at my school. Um, and I find myself just wanting to make sure they don't feel like I'm alienating them, because I'm, sure. I'm truly not. White supremacy hurts everybody, including white people. Absolutely. When I'm saying whiteness, I mean whiteness, you know, this structure, these systems, um, the engine behind the white supremacist machine. That is the thing that we need to step away from. Um, And it's going to be hard because we've been in this system now for so long. 
it's second nature to all of us, all of us, even black people, as much as we try to act like we're the wokest. And when I say we, I mean everybody, because mm-hmm. in our society now, and hopefully I'm not bringing any Twitter wars on myself because I don't really play that, but <laughs> like, we act like we are the wokest of the woke and there's nothing that can ever, you know, we can never be clocked on anything. That's cool. just not true. And I think yeah. that's also a tool of whiteness to think that we have finished learning. That is a tool of white supremacy to think mm-hmm. that there's some like peak we can reach mm-hmm. when really we're always learning. If we're going to, be a more feminist, which is just, that's where I come from, a feminist um, way of life, we have to understand that we're not always right. We're not always going to know everything. We need to explore new ways of being, we need to let go of some of these things that um, we hold so close, like mm-hmm. capitalism. Whoa. You know, like, Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm with it. I'm with it. I mean, and I don't know how to live outside of the capitalist society. I don't. Yeah. I have no idea. You know, I'm deeply living in a capitalist society. I mm-hmm. earn money. I spend money. I consume beyond what I actually need to consume. Like, mm-hmm. that's another part, though, of having a truly, I guess, inclusive and, in, in my mind, feminist ideology is admitting those things and not mm-hmm. saying, well, I'm the most, you know, communist of the communists. You'll never catch me doing anything. Cap- like, of <laughs> course we will. <laughs> yeah. Of course. Right. You know. But anyway, my point is the only way to erase all those things, or not erase really, because erasure is not the goal, but the only way to move to something else that actually benefits the people is to acknowledge, first of all, all those things that did happen. We're really still at acknowledgement. We hadn't moved into solutions yet. I think we're just now getting to acknowledgement, literally. We have one toe, one toe in there. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. Because people are still hung up on, but... My people were good, though, mm-hmm. but I'm a good one, though. Mm-hmm. But I voted for Obama, though. If I had a, if I had a penny, Gerald, for every time somebody came at me with, well, you know, if I could, I would have voted for him again. I know we saw yeah. it in, um, in Get Out, but people really do say that. They do. <laughs> and you're just like, uh, yes. And it means I, nothing. I right. Like, am I Obama? Like, why are you telling? <laughs> I don't. Yeah, I don't understand. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, so that is what I think. I think, you know, I definitely don't want anybody to ever forget what has been done or what's being done. I think that's also a tool of white supremacy. That's what has been happening forever. Look at your history books. Look at your Alabama history book in the fourth grade. They do not teach you what actually went down. Mm-hmm. Why is that? So that we can continue to believe that white supremacy did something good. Mm-hmm. for people mm-hmm. that you know people were saved from the first nations people mm-hmm. that slaves oh it was bad but it actually was good like <laughs> what <laughs> yeah yeah that's what white supremacy does it has to it has to do that to survive so we just got to get to the root of that thing and cut it off you know um, yeah. so yeah i think that's an answer to your question i feel like i've gone on a tangent here uh, no i think it's all very concrete and, and i'm so glad that you went there i wasn't expecting for you to go there but i'm so glad uh, you did um no no it's it's beautiful <laughs> it's, it's, it's i think it, it, it's how things are supposed to happen um that's how i would have answered the question myself uh if i was as on it <laughs> i think just because i'm so glad that you said the part about um acknowledging it so you said two, uh, several things but acknowledging and not erasing mm-hmm. and you can't Acknowledge something that you erased. So first of all, let's not erase things. Let you have to face it. And like, 
I think that's one of the things that I, in my interactions, I used to be a um, keyboard warrior in my my day, <laughs> like like back just uh, in the early days of Trayvon Martin and all that good stuff. I used to be out here arguing mm-hmm. with anybody. My socials have definitely quieted down. I think everybody who wants to argue has probably deleted me, which is fine. Hey. Um, <laughs> um, but in that moment, or even that's like when I had the most interaction with people who were in denial or who wanted to counter this progressive movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, the Trans Mm -hmm. um, Lives Matter movement, um, Mm -hmm. the LGBT, like all these movements with people trying to move forward. That's when I was talking to these folks and they were basically pushing back, trying to absolve themselves of any responsibility for it. My thing is, if we're living in a society where these things are still happening, it might have quote unquote started however long ago, Mm -hmm. but if we're living and they're still happening, and you're right. observing them or they're happening while mm-hmm. you're alive and breathing, you're, you're responsible for it. And that's literally mm-hmm. everyone, black folks, white folks. I'm not going to say green and purple folks. Cause we don't, we don't know about green and purple folks. We don't, <laughs> but you know, everybody who is living in our society, we have a responsibility to do the work. Now, that being said, I do think mm-hmm. the he has to do the majority of the heavy lifting in this. In this oh, yeah. Yeah. And some of that lifting is literally stepping aside. Like that's one thing that a lot of people in positions of power don't understand. What I don't need is a solidarity statement and t-shirts made. What I don't need is, um, you know, you posted on social media, how many rallies you went to Mm. and you know, like, Oh, you weren't there. I was there. I was like, okay, good. But are you harassed every day of your life? Like, I don't understand how that equals the black experience, you know, mm. um, what I do need is for people to listen, of course. Um, and of course I have to listen to groups that I don't understand either. You know, I'm, mm. that's another part as black people specifically, we can't act like we're the only people who have been oppressed in the history of life. Hello. We're not Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. now that said, we've been done very wrong. I mean, you could, be here for years just describing all this stuff oh, for that sure. has been done. But the thing that I think is another tool of the white supremacy machine is dividing all of us who are oppressed. Mm-hmm. Because we all believe we're, you know, against each other, we can't unify against a common enemy, which again to be clear is whiteness, white supremacy, not white people. Precisely. Okay. Um but, you know, all of our struggles, I think, are so linked. If we were to one day look around and say, wait a minute, we got to help our First Nations people. We got to help our transgender people. Mm-hmm. We got to help, um, you know, everyone in the LGBTQIA plus mm-hmm. community. Mm-hmm. We've got to help poor people. We've got to help you know, our Asian community. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And, and realize that Asia is a large place. Okay. Yeah. There's lots of different people. <laughs> in there yeah. let's stop misnaming people mm-hmm. let's stop using stereotypes against mm-hmm. other people there's no reason for any of that if we were to do that one day it would all be over with like yeah. we would all be like boom here we go let's get our programs together you know yeah. let's get the children <laughs> educated <laughs> you know yeah but because we're all like siloed and you know thinking oh well white man got us down what are we gonna do about it like okay yeah we are down in, in many ways, but if we all picked it up, we wouldn't be down anymore, <laughs> yeah, you know? for sure. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Oh, I think one thing that you said that I really loved too was 
decentralizing whiteness and getting out of the way. I, that's something I've also seen a lot of where I'm just like, wow, things would be rolling really well if we had someone with like a more acute perspective on this actual situation, if they were at the helm of this task force or if they were at the helm of, you know, the ones making the, actually making the, the decisions. I'm just, it's very interesting. <laughs> I mean, I get it. I mean, I guess whites, because of white supremacy, white people have been put in positions of power for so long that just kind of maybe assume or feel like they need to be or that they have to be or there's like a natural quote unquote space for them to be in, which I'm sorry, that's not the case. <laughs> so, and if you really want things to change, change that first of all. I mean, like, come on, like seriously, like I, I, I love that that idea. I mean, and I think it's something to be on a hopeful note, we are seeing a change of guards. We're seeing a lot of black women, which I'm loving who are stepping up and, you know, taking uh, positions, not just in the political arena or like in our courts and that sort of thing, but also in our communities, which I mean, that's not a new thing. Black women have always been, you know, carrying the world on their backs for the origin of species. (laughs) Seriously. Uh, (laughs) I mean, I think we're just now seeing, being able to see that more readily and, and recognizing that. Um, but more of that, we need that across, like you said, all the spectrum, all the different people. Um, yes. And it just has to become like this emergence of all these folks, except for the white folks, um, who can take a break, you know, and fall back a little bit and learn and then find other ways to enrich this forward movement. Um, that's just where I mean, I'm, I, that's where I am. And I'm glad, so glad that yeah. we're, we're on the same page, which is not a shock. <laughs> <laughs> but not shocking it's not shocking but i'm just i think it's important for these things to be said and to be heard um and they've been said on this show in so many ways uh before but i think your poem did a, an amazing job of again telling that history very beautifully mm-hmm. and then kind of foreshadowing yo if we don't get our act together this is what is going to happen or if you don't you he whiteness white supremacy don't get your act together this is what's going to happen and uh mm-hmm. Yeah, and so and I think this shows the beauty of poetry. It can be a vehicle for that sort of message. It doesn't have to be a sermon, even though you will preach. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't have to be, you know, in a textbook or in some like philosophical conversation. It can be, we, we find these things in poetry. We have people out here like you doing that good work. So thank you so much for sharing Manifest. Of course. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, can I say right quick, um, cool. There's something there's something on my spirit, as the old folks say. Come on now. Uh, <laughs> dealing with that last um, conversation. Just to add a little hope or maybe opportunity, mm-hmm. something that I have always tried to do and um, something that I think we all can actually do in our own you know, communities or circles or jobs or whatever is allowing others to come with you when you go somewhere. And what I mean by that is any opportunity that you have I'll just take it to me specifically. Anywhere that I'm able to go, any opportunity that I've been awarded, I try to make sure I'm grabbing on to my people. And that doesn't just mean Black people, but, you know, Alabamians, Southerners, whatever. I'm grabbing them and saying, hey, we're in here. Come on. Mm. Because that's another way to fight against this white supremacist machine, which tells us that there's only one exceptional person that will rise to the top of the pack or whatever. And that's actually killing us too. Like if we were to, to share and say, hey, I have this plate, but everybody's hungry. Yeah. Everybody come on and mm. eat. That's another way to sort of 
get rid of that, that, um, very toxic way of stop, <laughs> toxic way of living. Um, so yeah, so that, that's one thing that you can do in your own, you know, circle. Um, if you are someone who, um, is an editor of anything, you know, mm-hmm. invite people into the room, you know, ask them to submit work or give them assignments or give them, um, leadership positions. If you're a teacher, invite your students to have knowledge also, like don't, um, make it a top-down sort of classroom. If you're, I don't know, a musician, share the microphone with somebody else who might mm-hmm. need some space and time. And it all will come back to you. Um, everything that you give will always come back to you tenfold. Sure. That, that's how giving works. Um, I'm sure that's in the Bible somewhere too, but I don't, <laughs> I don't know the verse. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's okay. I mean, it's something that speaks, that I'm a, a major proponent of, and that's community. And that's how you build community. And you talk about sharing, like that, that's such an organic, very easy way to live. Like you don't have to, and I think that's one of the things, particularly when it comes to like racism and white supremacy is we, when we see something that's happening for people of color and then you see like the white community like, oh, well, why did they get this? When, you know, we've been doing, you know, you, know, you got, the, why did they have BET? And why did they have Black History Month? And why did they have these special, <laughs> you know, you've heard those things. And it's not about, you know, one community getting more than the other. It's literally like restoration. It's literally, I, I, it's hard for me. It's, it's interesting. I just don't think they understand that these, the Black community and other, these other marginalized communities are coming from a place that's literally unequal, you know, and we have to have these things before we can actually move forward without all the strife and the struggle and the pain and all this other mm-hmm. good stuff. Um, and you can do that by literally, like you just said, inviting people into the room, inviting mm-hmm. people um, for opportunities, leadership positions. We need more mm-hmm. people from marginalized communities in leadership positions. It, there's just no excuse at this point. Um, there's some and not as a token. That's the other thing. Mm-hmm. Like, we can't just use a person and be like, okay, here you are. Now fix us. Right. Which no. <laughs> is trauma, first of all. That you might as well put a gun to my head really at that point, because you're like, wow, let me put all this pressure and all this responsibility on you to fix our organization, to mm-hmm. fix our, our community, fix our government. Um, mm-hmm. you know, just <laughs> please don't. Um give us actual um power, which I mean for the people in the back, racism, I think people don't also don't understand what racism is in because you just think it's this oh black people or white people hating black people. If there's an element of power in there where mm-hmm. black people again have we're trying to be restored to an, a space of power or a place of power um, to do things to have agency. And so whenever you do keep people from places of leadership roles where mm-hmm. they can enact things, you're not giving them the power to do that. I mean, it's and racism is very insidious in that it's very small and 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 small in that way. Um, mm-hmm. You have to watch out for it. So I, I'm just, I hope people, somebody's listening and, just, and it's clicking. Maybe, maybe. Yeah, it's <laughs> everywhere. I mean, just a quick example, if people are still not there, think about, I'll take it to me. Again, I'm a big believer in keeping it personal so that it can sure. become universal. Um, the hair that grows out of my head is curly. It's kinky. Some will call it nappy. I will call it nappy, personally. Now, not everybody can call it nappy to my face, however. (laughs) But I would call it that. It's what comes out of my head naturally. It's just, that's what it is. Think about how throughout my whole life, I've thought that I needed to fix the thing that is just coming out of my head. It's just coming out. 
I have thought this is wrong. I must now straighten this. I must now put chemicals in it. I can't be seen with any kind of naps anywhere. That is how deep and like molecular that racism can go. That one person can walk out of the house with her natural hair and it's not even called natural hair. It's just called hair. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. There's no aisle for European hair care. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's none of that. But the fact that I have to search high and low, that there's a boom now of natural hair, you know, stuff that I couldn't have just been born and had hair and been done with it. Right. Like yeah. that's, it, it's, there's levels. It's not just like Gerald said, it's not just, I want to sit in front of this bus. Well, I want to, before I even leave the house to get on the bus, I'd like to be able to just, you know, pick my Afro out and feel good about myself. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's all, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah, and so. it, that's it. That's restoration. Like I never thought about that. This, it's not. It's we have to put a, a a qualifier on this thing that is very organic, very natural. But for black folks and our natural hair, we can't just say it like that. It has to be qualified as such because it has been changed for decades mm-hmm. to become something else. But now, in this movement of forward progression, we're trying to restore the power in our hair. Something is. Mm-hmm. Minuscule. Reparations now. Yeah. Rep. Oh, come on. Reparations now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We're trying to restore that. Um. So yeah. I hope again. I hope somebody's tapping into that, and listening, and and understanding, and hopefully this starts a conversation. This is what this podcast is all about. We're trying to ha- model these conversations so that you can think about it, reflect on, it, and then carry it on to your your friend circle, your family circle, um, and that we grow. We all go to a higher ground from, <laughs> <Uh-oh>. <laughs> um, from these conversations. So um, actually, thank you for that conversation. We can really have the benediction right there, but we're going to keep going because we got some really good, good stuff. Gerald here. You just listened to the first half of my conversation with our first National Poetry Month guest, Birmingham poet Ashley M. Jones. I hope you enjoyed the conversation thus far because there's a lot more where that came from. The feature poem that Ashley shared with us is called Manifest Destiny, and you can catch it and a whole new collection of Ashley's poetry in her upcoming book, Reparations Now, coming to stores on September 7th, 2021. Reparations Now is currently available for pre-order wherever you buy your books. The other poem that Ashley mentioned was Uncle Remus' Syrup Commemorative Lynching Postcard Number 25. That poem is from her last book, Dark Thing, which was released in 2019. Be sure to check out that one as well. The song used to back Ashley's reading of Manifest Destiny is called Rock Bottom by Audio Binger. The theme music used in this episode was created by Birmingham-based producer Jasmine Garfield. You should check out her work with Art Intel Medium. Don't miss part two of my conversation with Ashley, which will be in an episode coming to you this Thursday. Until then, be easy.